At this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired. We are here with Sarah Vallely, mindfulness teacher, coach, and author. Sarah has been teaching meditation and mindfulness for the past two decades, training and certifying others to teach mindfulness. Sarah is the author of four books. Her latest book is titled Tame, Soothe, Dwell, The 55 Teachings of TSD Mindfulness. On today's episode, we discuss a mindfulness test that is available online, the results of which show a small investment in mindfulness can make a big difference over time. I'm Jacob DeRosset. We are here with Sarah Vallely. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing great, Jacob. Thank you. You know, I have been drinking water mixed with lime and salt. Have you ever done this? I drink lemon and salt and apple cider vinegar every morning. Oh, okay. Mixed with water or just as yeah. a shot? As in water. Okay. So that's probably does similar things. One of my health practitioners that I'm working with has me drinking a quart of water with a half of a lime juice and then some salt in there. And I'll tell you what, it really does wonders. I feel so alert and awake and energized after I drink it. I just feel like I have to tell everybody about this because it feels so good. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've done the lemon and salt and apple cider vinegar for so long. I don't remember why I do it. Obviously, sea salt is for hydration. I'd always heard lemon was for your metabolism. And it probably is, but I like that it, because the acidity, I feel like it kind of gets me woken up a bit. Like it'd be similar to putting cayenne mm -hmm. because that's also supposed to be good for your metabolism. The lime is alkaline. So that's the oh, reason that for the lime. Okay. And then the sea salt, it has to be sea salt. Correct. Yeah. It creates the electrolytes. So we've derailed this mindfulness podcast. I <laughs> know. I just, we were just talking about drinking tea before we pushed record. So I had it yeah. on my mind, but I was telling someone about how I'm drinking this drink now with the lime and the salt. And she said, Oh, do you know what I do? I'm on an alkaline diet and I take a whole watermelon. It must be seedless. And in the beginning of the week, she takes the whole thing and she blends it. And then she puts it into different jars. So she has a jar every day. That's what she does when she wakes up in the morning is she drinks this blended watermelon. And she said that's one of the best ways to hydrate yourself. All, all throughout summer, I eat a lot of watermelon or grapes for lunch and blueberries and things like that. And I know it's like fall time. It's so funny. I transitioned to apples. So now I'm eating two or three apples for lunch every day, which I know is absurd when some people hear that. That's oh. weird to do. I know it's weird, but that's what I do. So that's good. Good fiber. And do you cut it up with your fork? <laughs> Weren't you sharing about how you eat everything with a fork? Oh, or chopsticks. Chopsticks. That's right. Yeah. I quarter or ace the apple and I eat it with chopsticks. I know it's weird. Uh, it's very strange, but <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, whatever works. So anyway, getting back to the topic, we include a lot of research in our podcast episodes. We have shared data on the degrees of pain, the number of microaggressions, the intensity of depression, PTSD resulting from watching the news, eating disorder symptoms, levels of cognitive bias, and of course, the level of mindfulness skills and mindfulness disposition. As an example, in a previous episode, episode 29, titled Anger in Relationships, Is There a Cure? I shared some data that after learning mindfulness, the participants, their anger decreased by 
and their emotional regulation increased by 8% and their mindfulness increased by 3.5%. These were first responders. There were some different evaluation methods used to gather that data. And the evaluation method that was used to gather that data about their mindfulness, how much their mindfulness increased, the assessment that they used was called the five-facet mindfulness questionnaire. This questionnaire has 39 items and was developed by someone named Dr. Ruth Baer, and she's a professor at the University of Kentucky. Nice. Yeah, Jacob's from Kentucky. Yeah, there's actually another mindfulness questionnaire from Kentucky also. So it's the capital of mindfulness questionnaires. Funny enough, Louisville, Kentucky, if I'm not totally mistaken, has one of the only Buddhist statues in the U.S. Oh, really? I think it's a placard, actually. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, Dr. Bear, she teaches several mindfulness-based interventions, including acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and mindfulness-based stress reduction. I would love to get TSD mindfulness on that list. I'm going to make it my goal, my lifetime goal to get TSD mindfulness on that list. I emailed her last night. I emailed Dr. Ruth Bear. And the reason I emailed her is I asked her if she would like to be a guest on our podcast. Great. Yeah, because we talk about so much research. So I thought it would be neat to have somebody in that research world to school us a little bit on it and give us kind of an in-depth view. The five-facet mindfulness questionnaire you can take online, and I will give you the website. It's also in our show notes. You'll be able to link right to it. It's 49 questions, and you can go to www.awakemind.org backslash quiz.com. PHP. And you can go ahead and take this questionnaire and find out your level of mindfulness. This questionnaire has been used in a lot of studies. The studies show that the results of this five-facet mindfulness questionnaire predict how positive our thinking is, how uplifted our mood is, how healthy our well-being is. And so I'd also guess that it would predict the opposite as well. And this questionnaire is used in research and in therapy to determine if a lack of mindfulness is a reason for poor mental health. So it can be a really important tool, I would say. Here are the five facets. So the first one is called observation. So there are certain questions in the questionnaire that specifically address how well we observe our surroundings, for example, how well we observe our emotions and how well we intentionally focus on certain stimuli. Another one is description. And so there are a handful of questions that test how well we use vocabulary to describe our thoughts and our emotions, either through journaling or being contemplative or speaking to another person. I thought this was interesting because if you read a book about mindfulness written by a mindfulness teacher, you don't normally read about using vocabulary to describe your thoughts and emotions. Can you give an example of what that means? Yeah. So say you're triggered and you know you're upset, uh, but maybe you don't know exactly what words to use to describe that. Maybe you don't know that on a deep level you feel rejected. Maybe you don't know on a deep level you feel betrayed, helpless, powerless. Maybe you're not used to using those words to describe how you're feeling. Yeah, I've never heard that used in a contemplative sense. I've heard it in other 
context, obviously, but never in a contemplative way. I think that the reason that this is showing up here is because Dr. Bear has this background in working with therapists, right? It reminds me a lot of a nonviolent communication, which I talk about all the time. That was very pivotal for me in learning the different vocabulary words and having a reference sheet. It sounds like a bridging of like two different worlds. A lot of meditation teachers usually begin in therapy and start working there. When you read a traditional mindfulness book, or listen to a mindfulness teacher speak, a lot of time it's about moving into the nonverbal and really just being in the present moment and not analyzing. So this is another direction of adding the vocabulary, but super helpful. Another facet is acting with awareness. So these questions test on how well we take pause to reflect before we act and how well we wake up from autopilot modes. Being non-judgmental, so these test our ability to be mentally neutral, test our, our degree of being accepting, accepting of ourselves and other people. And non-reactivity, that's the last facet. So these questions measure how well we're able to separate ourselves from our own thinking and how well we accept our thoughts as they are with and our emotions just as they are. As far as this non-reactivity, I personally couldn't have gotten better at this without reading Kristen Neff's book, Self-Compassion. I mean, so much of my reactivity was based in devaluing myself, beating myself up. She outlines how to reverse that, how to replace putting yourself down with self-compassion, speaking to yourself in a, in a compassionate way. It was, it was really life-changing for me. I have a question. When you find you read books like that, do you get into a really intense phase of striving? I usually get a little carried away with it to the point where it becomes almost self-flagellating. If I don't do the things, I tend to get frustrated if like things aren't going the way that I feel like they should based on all the stuff I'm doing. And that's when you know my mindfulness alarm goes off. And then I realize, okay, I've probably been neglecting learning about um, ways of the mind a bit. you know. And, and typically that practice involves me accepting a lot more and relaxing and not feeling like I have to, you know? So, so anyway, so the question is really like when you read books like that, that are very poignant on trying to improve something, do you find yourself getting swept away into that? I think it depends on your personality. I definitely have that type of personality where I'm goal oriented. So I have to be really mindful of not setting too many goals for myself. It's finding that balance because then you have someone else has a completely different personality and they might do better if they set more goals. So it's really finding that sweet spot. I think you and I, Jacob, we both have type A personalities and we really are self-driven and we push ourselves. And I think for us, that is one of the things that we're here on this planet learning is how do I accept myself where I'm at and let myself off the hook a little bit. I really struggle with that. That's my something that it really gets away from me. In the Buddhist teachings, it's either avoidance or craving, aversion or craving, right? So I think that's one of the ways mindfulness can be really helpful to all of us individually is to get to know the nature of our existence and our mind to find out which one of those we're doing more. Are we more on the avoidance side? Or are we more on the craving side? You and I are probably more on the craving side. We're striving, striving, striving. So we need to do things to let go and, and be more in the middle way. If you go to that website that I listed and the one that's in the show notes, and you take that test, you'll get some scores. It'll just automatically, boom, you'll have your scores. And you probably are wondering, well, what the heck do these scores mean? I eyeballed some results 
that were from some stressed out college students. So stressed out college students, their average scores for the different categories were about 3.2. And my- Out of how many? Five. Okay. So that's 3.2 out of five. I got about a 3.7. So not super high, but what I found when I answered the questions is that I experienced a lot of the items a lot, which is what the questionnaire is measuring is how often it's frequency. How often do you experience these scenarios? And yeah, I experienced them a lot, but I it didn't take into account for how long do you experience each one. So I'd like to think that, yeah, I experience them a lot. But be, yeah, but because I have a, a good mindfulness practice, I'm not like in it for a long time. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's interesting because another perspective would be how big of a deal is this to you? Does this throw your entire day off? Again, I haven't re- done the study, but that sounds like a missed opportunity there to like, what's the half-life of this? If you're really measuring someone's mindfulness ability, because, you know, and here's the other thing too, you are likely way more aware of this as well. Your awareness of it is there, but what's your attachment level? You know, how long does it take you to get back on track after after experiencing something like that? How much is it affecting your daily life? If you read the DSM manual, a lot of the criteria there are based on how much is this affecting your daily life? I chose the questions on the test that I find my client struggle with the most. I'm probably going to get on my soapbox about each one. And then Jacob is going to save the show by just being Jacob. Here's one of them. The item is, I'm good at finding words to describe my feelings. I think that a lot of people struggle with this. Some people were really emotional and they get locked into it and they can't really use words to describe it. And one of the reasons I think using words to describe it is so helpful is it helps you be present with it. If you do use words to describe your experience, you're more present with it. What resources are you using to develop your emotional language? Something to think about. I have the emotional clusters and I'll post those on the on the blog post. And I find that when my clients learn the language to describe these experiences, that they feel more clear, they have more clarity, they feel more focused because being in the state of not understanding and not getting it can be very distracting for the rest of your day. I found that when my clients learn this vocabulary, they feel more capable. So it increases their their confidence. Another item here is I criticize myself for having irrational or inappropriate emotions. Oh my God, please, please, for the love of God, stop putting yourself down for being irrational. This is not healthy. It's not supportive. It's not loving or putting yourself down for being inappropriate. These emotions of feeling rejected, that's just a a natural response to certain scenarios, feeling betrayed. It's an innocent response or feeling misunderstood or abandoned. And I'll put one more caveat in there because I've had this experience and still do is don't get frustrated when you can't be very compassionate. There are some days I'm not doing well with something and then I'm frustrated that I can't do well with something. Then I'm frustrated that I'm having a hard time letting go of being frustrated and it's a spiral, you know? What do you do when you find yourself in that spiral of just getting down on yourself because you're not handling it the way you want to handle it? 
tell myself I haven't been meditating enough. I should do an hour a day and I should journal and I should take a walk in the morning and I should connect with myself. You know what I mean? When I am struggling, it's really hard to get there. It feels very, very steep. And I'm like, okay, right now I'm not going to be handling this well, it seems like. Okay, that's fine. Just don't handle it well. And you're going to go to sleep and wake up and it's probably going to get better then, you know? And I try to shorten that to like, okay, just be mad in this car right now or be mad in this interaction or whatever it is. And then let's try to pivot. But just know that tomorrow when you wake up, that's usually the great reset right there for me. I try to get a hold of a, a branch on the way down, but sometimes you just fall into the lagoon and that's just the way it is. Or lagoon, not lagoon. Lagoon is... <laughs> into the pot of beans. Yeah, the pot of beans. Yeah, I, a really dark time in my life. My daughter moved out. She was going to be starting college. I got in a snowboarding accident and couldn't work. My concussion was so bad. I literally couldn't do anything but sit on my couch for five months. It's a really dark time for me. And I went to some really dark places in my head. I was going through mother guilt. I was going through devastating loss. I just felt like I was losing my daughter, which in reality was not what was happening, but it really felt like that. And then not being able to provide for my family because I couldn't work. I was putting myself down to such a degree that there was points where I just didn't want to be on this planet anymore. And that's just shame at its absolute worst. I mean, that's shame. You're so shameful. You're so down on yourself. You don't want to be here anymore. And and that's when I started listening to Kristen Neff's book. I listened to it probably about three times on Audible. And that's what got me through was just to love and accept myself for all of these deep feelings of loss and, and incapableness, but to still love myself and to know that other people still love me, even though I was going through all that. It was really life-changing. That's amazing. I've had books like that as well, that like it was just a perfect pivotal thing. That would be a really fun series to do. Just talk about one thing that really meant everything to you at a certain point in your life. Because I don't think those things get enough attention. Nonviolent communication. I listened to that one through like three times. I would love to hear your list of things that have meant a lot to you. My most recent was watching My Octopus Teacher. <laughs> was, yeah, you texted me about was, that. I mean, there's love yeah deep in the ocean. It's a story yeah. about this octopus who creates this relationship with a human being and the yeah. love and care that they have for one another. It opens your mind to that there's love everywhere in places yeah. you just wouldn't even look. My octopus teacher, yeah. definitely watch it. It's on Netflix. Okay, so another item here on this, this questionnaire about mindfulness, I perceive my feelings and emotions without having to react to them. So nine out of 10 times, people immediately feel the need to shut down their emotions. That's a really typical reaction. Uh, what might be other typical reactions that come up when somebody's experiences a pretty deep emotion? We might react by fleeing, just saying, I can't deal with this. I'm going to go check out, go do something else. We might get aggressive. We might freeze and just shut down completely. Going back to mindfulness, can we just sit there and be with it? And that has so much to do with that self-acceptance. If you accept yourself with the emotion, then you don't have to react. You don't have to run away and so forth. Another item, I tell myself I shouldn't be feeling the way I'm feeling. Oh, stop. <laughs> stop doing that. Stop telling yourself that you shouldn't be feeling a certain way. Yeah. And you can't help it. Oh, yeah. Been there. You can't. You just can't help sure. it. I mean, the Im immediate, you know, if, if, if somebody, if somebody's rude to you, you get upset and you can't help that, that you get upset, you are justified in getting upset. Someone hurt your feelings, you know? Now, the moment after, 
And then if you're telling yourself not to do something or you're wrong in doing something, that's just going to further perpetuate everything. So yeah, you're just doubling down at that point. Sometimes these feelings that come up, it's inconvenient. It's like we're having a good day and then something happens and then throws us into this emotion and then it's just a big inconvenience, but it's part of being human. Here's another item. I think some of my emotions are bad or inappropriate and I shouldn't feel them. Same idea. We don't want to do that. Another item. It seems I am running on autopilot without much awareness of what I'm doing. So if this is you, if you are someone that's just distracted a lot, there's a reason for that. Here are some of the reasons that I find with my clients. They're overextended. Overextended means you're overscheduled, you're overworked, you're putting too much pressure on yourself. So we can really unwind that and see what the root of that is. It can be really distracting. You're actually using the distraction to to avoid something in a very deep level. Retriggered trauma can cause this kind of distraction. So you're triggered by old trauma and it gets in the way of you being clear and alert and mindful and you check out into this autopilot place. And some people just simply have difficulty concentrating. And that's workable. I mean, that's a skill just like any other skill. Developing concentration is something that you can improve on. You can do exercises that actually increase your concentration. And a simple mindfulness practice is one of those ways. My big thing is not a matter of concentration. It's hyper-focus. Yeah, I really kind of struggle with hyper-focus. If I'm hyper-focused on something, then to like come down from that, I'll distract myself with social media or a book or something or a video online or just hanging out and talking to somebody. Are you saying that there's this cycle that builds that you become hyper-focused, it burns you out a little bit, and when you burn out, then you get to distract yourself with social media and things like that? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it goes in day cycles or, or even hourly cycles of like just getting hyper-focused on something. And that's why work is very good because mm-hmm. I'm able to really channel it. But it's like when I'm left uh, supervised <laughs> with myself, that that's where I struggle. What's tricky about that is that your hyper-focused has probably been really good for you in certain Oh, it's been everything. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, when people are going into burnout mode, What's getting them there is a characteristic that they have that's actually a really good characteristic that they have. That makes perfect sense. And yeah, the mindfulness part is being aware of how that characteristic is putting you into burnout mode and using mindfulness to catch that and use redirection to, to unwind that. I wanted to share one more study that uses the five facets mindfulness questionnaire. They took some psychology students and some medical students, a whole mess of them, over 200, which is another nice factor of this study is they had a really good pool of participants. And these people participated one and a half hours of training in mindfulness once a week for seven weeks. And they were also asked to do a 20-minute at-home practice. So that was at the beginning. And then they were given a booster session in mindfulness once a year for those follow-up years. However, at least half the people in the study didn't even go to a single booster session. They gave the five-facet mindfulness questionnaire at the beginning, and then they gave it once a year for six years. The group that was taught the mindfulness, they increased their mindfulness skills by 
12.5% over the span of the six years. And then the other group, the control group that was was not taught mindfulness, their mindfulness went up 5% over the span of the six years. So the people who were taught mindfulness, their rate of getting better at mindfulness was more than double the control group. That's pretty amazing. I mean, more than double the results. But to someone listening, they're like, okay, well, six years, 12%, that may not sound that amazing. And it's like, okay, what if I told you you could have a 12% improvement in your health in six years or your fitness level or body composition or income? You know, that's pretty good. Sustained improvement over the course of six years sounds pretty nice to me. Yeah. And the investment was low. Literally all they did was once a week for seven weeks, they learned mindfulness for an hour and a half. That's something that would be so easy for so many of us. I give a six-week training class. There's so, so many of these classes that you can take online or join something in person. And if we go back to that data from the first responders, their anger decreased by 15%, but their mindfulness only increased by 3.5%. So if your anger can decrease by 15% with just a little teeny bit of mindfulness, 12% mindfulness, like how much of an effect is that going to have on your anger? I mean, that's going to be a big, lot. Yeah. Yeah, so it, a little bit goes a long way. The Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD mindfulness production. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame, S as in soothe, and D as in dwell. Mind as in mindfulness.org. Check out our blog post for this episode with links to supplemental information such as worksheets you can use to put into practice the mindfulness skills shared in this episode. Also, please sign up for our newsletter and receive mindfulness tips. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at aware underscore mind underscore podcast. Thank you.